Katie Cantu, naturalist with Jasper County Conservation, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. Well, Kent and I just got done being on the road in Illinois, hanging out with some of the coolest people you ever meet. And you'll have to, if you want to listen to that episode, you'll have to listen to it later. Uh, but today, this morning, uh, January 11th, we are hanging out with uh, some wonderful folks in Jasper County, Iowa. And uh, we are with the Owls. Is it the Nature Conservancy Group? Is that, is that what's the title here? Older, wiser, livelier seniors. That's a, that's a good name. Yeah. And that's a really good name. People who are here because they care about uh, some of the prairie that we're here to talk to uh, uh, talk to everyone about. And we just wanted to take the opportunity and record it because these are some of our favorite interactions. So I'm here with my favorite co-host, Kent. That's right. Good uh, to be here again. And instead of a single, audi- a single guest, we have a full audience as our guest today. And uh, we are honored to be here. But uh, yeah, Ken, why, why don't you pull us in? Yeah, it's good to be here. A little uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Nick and I, we pulled into my driveway last night at about 11 p.m. We were uh, down in Lincoln, Illinois, and uh, headed home at 6 p.m. last night. And that was just one of those things where it's like, man, when we're taking off, Nick, you're going to be driving by the end of this one, buddy, because I'm going to be. We kept trying to stop to get food. And we finally find a Casey's that's along the road because we're taking like back roads, I guess, to get all the way back to Iowa. Uh, and the one Casey's we finally stop at had and it looked no great. food. And it, w- it had no food. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> yep. So it was a Slim Jim supper and uh, a <laughs> can of Pringles. And I was uh, hibernating, you know, moments after. Uh, we finished the last bite there. Nick Nick carried us home the rest of the way, but it was a great experience. And uh, the reason we did that podcast episode is we're working on a project that we're going to call the Prehistoric Prairie, where we talk about a lot of the life that was once here that is no longer here. Um, some cases extirpated, meaning not totally extinct from uh, all places, but extinct from uh, the prairie states. Uh, in other cases, totally extinct. We talk about animals like stag moose, giant ground sloths, giant beavers, even different uh, subspecies or, or entire species of bison and a subspecies of elk. All things that uh, there's evidence from in uh, the bone record, I guess you could say. Uh, and uh, we talked with some gentlemen who had those things uh, uh, that they'd found in their adventures and we're, we were lucky enough to not just be able to look at them, but handle them and, and get pictures with them and so forth. Uh, but we're, we're here today to talk about the importance of prairie, talk about, as Nick said, how Hoxie Native Seeds came to be. Our founder, Carol Hoxbergen, uh, started that years ago. Nick's going to introduce that a little bit. Um, but uh, I think a lot of people, when they think of prairie, they think of a kind of almost a sad story. And it is in a lot of ways, right? Um I was just making sure I had my facts straight here on some good hard numbers for you. I, I did a little research, and uh, I thought the number was more right around 80%, but Iowa DNR uh, cites 70 to 80% of Iowa was once covered in prairie. Um, we still have some prairie, but no, nowhere near what, what that value was at 70 to 80%. And so I looked, okay, what is the current amount and it is about a tenth of a percent of Iowa is now covered in prairie. So uh, we've lost, uh, you know, if if we go with that low number, you know, uh, 69.9% of our, of our, uh, or sorry, 99.9% of that 70% of our surface area. And so uh, it's, it's, it's an alarming uh, difference, right? And uh, we're going to talk more about that. And with that, as I was just saying, we've lost a lot of these amazing animals, uh, um, even uh, some that aren't quite so charismatic as a bison or an elk, uh, you know, songbirds, uh, reptiles, amphibians, a lot of different critters that once called Iowa home and not just Iowa, other prairie states like where we were yesterday in Illinois or down into Kansas, Oklahoma, other places. Uh, these, these things are gone. And so, um, 
it's, it's the state of where things are, but we're all here because we're all optimists, right? We know that things can get better and, uh, we, we value taking in information, learning how to make things better. And we value sharing information with each other and with a larger audience, which is why we do the podcast in hopes that others can buy into the vision that we already have. And uh, that started, that vision really started with Hoxie Native Seeds uh, with uh, our founder, Carol Hoxberg. And so, Nick, could you kind of explain how that started? Man, it's, it's quite a story. But uh, just for context, Carol is my stepdad. He married my mom when I was seven. And then when I was eight, he gave me a hoe and said, that's a weed. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, so actually growing up, I knew a lot about weeds. I actually knew way less about prairie than I knew about weeds. And, uh, uh, but my grandpa would always say, oh, don't worry. It's just job security. Just some job security <laughs> out there for you. Um, and I mean, I was, he was really, I was really making it. I think he paid me $2 an hour to start. Uh, and then by the time I was 14, I was making three fifty. dollars uh, It was, it was a good go. time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, I've, I've gotten a raise since then. <laughs> And, but, um, before I was born, I, it, we had the eighties, we had that boom, we had $3 corn and, um, people ripped up pastures, you know, they ripped up everything they could. They planted fence row to fence row, not necessarily anything wrong with that, but then we got a lot more corn than we needed. And then we had a farm crash. And so my, my dad and his brother, uh, are trying to make it work. So they start a roofing company in Pella called Pella Roofing, and they uh, uh, were farming at the same time. And uh, they just couldn't make go. They couldn't make any money off corn. And what what do you tell the bank when you like? Well, I have a hundred thousand dollars worth of corn. And I'm like, well, you don't have any money in your bank account, so it's a little different. Uh, and he was pondering that. He was sitting outside of his house one evening after work and he was watching these pheasants fly from his cornfields to the ditch nearby. Um, and, uh, and that got him thinking about, well, what in the world, why, why don't they hang out in my cornfield? And he talked to a veterinarian that lived nearby and a real charismatic guy. And he, he explained to my dad that, well, there was big blue stem and Indian grass. It was tall grass for nesting and for cover, uh, for those pheasants. And he, uh, dad always had these friends. Hey, you got any place to hunt? You got any place for bird hunting? And he never had a place. Well, he decided if I can't make money growing corn, I might as well try making money growing Indian grass. So he started growing Indian grass, but he got it from out of state. And, uh, while he was, and, and he made a lot of mistakes. I believe we're talking 1986. No one knows how to grow prairie grass at this point. And, uh, spent a lot of money making those mistakes on his first field of Indian grass. And then eventually he accidentally burned down, um, three cedar trees, was it? Yeah. A row of cedar trees when he was, when he was burning. So so the, the mistake, if we, if, if if I remember correctly here was he planted the seed too deeply Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, conventional ag would tell you, planting is dig a hole in the ground, put a seed in it and watch it grow. Right. And, uh, but with grass species, a lot of those are dispersed in, in ways such as wind, water, animal fur, you know, ways that aren't putting the seed down in the earth and and burying it under soil, laying up on top of the earth. Yeah. Even if you look at the seed, like a corn, uh, uh, seed of corn, grain of corn or soybean, they're a lot bigger. They're a lot heavier. So, so God intended that those things would fall and actually bury themselves into the ground a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Well, prairie grass seed, most of it is very small. Very light. Yeah. Very light. So it just sits kind of on top of the ground, maybe gets a little bit of scuffing here and there, and then it starts to grow. So he had, he had put it too deep, couldn't get it to grow, and he was burning. Got, was burning fox got weeds instead. Yeah. Foxtails came up instead of his prairie grass. Yeah. And so, so he's trying to burn this field. Uh, trying, you know, just trying to get it some more. He'd heard that might help prairie grass grow. So he's doing it, accidentally sets these cedar trees on fire. They burn up to a crisp. They're gone, which is a bummer. But what grew under the, where those trees were was decades, if not centuries old prairie grass. Just the roots had sat in the ground for that long, dormant, couldn't compete with the trees around them. As soon as you took out the trees, they sprung up and he had a certified remnant. I think he got six, 
six or eight species from yep. it. You know, the the uh, main ones, little blue stem, big blue stem, Indian grass, switchgrass, cytoats uh, grama, were all in this little area under where the seed, uh, cedar trees were. And that's how he got his first um, Iowa ecotype seed. And that was a little area. And then he spent the next decade turning two handfuls of seed <laughs> into, you know, hundreds of acres of, of different fields. But, uh, uh, yeah, and, and throughout the years, he would just sell to big um, – big retail sell, you know, he just sell it for pennies on the dollar and maybe 15 years ago, CRP, eh, yeah, about 15 years ago, CRP really started taking off more and more. Um, instead of just putting in brome, they were putting in big bluestem. I think uh, the first field he ever sold to another farmer personally, <laughs> I mean, if anyone works with the NRCS now, they'd laugh at this, but it had two species in it, big bluestem and round-headed bush clover, and that was it. And now, You'd be hard pressed to find a mix that doesn't have 15 or 20 species in it that's going to go in the ground. And and he went, I mean, he mostly did grasses. And about 10 years ago, he started doing some wildflowers. Maybe, yeah, about 10 years ago. And now I, I think we harvested, we har we grew 42 species, but you can always bank on about two or three of those not producing anything. And I think we harvested 39 species this year, which, uh, uh, which sounds cool until you're the guy who has to clean out the combine in between every single species <laughs> <laughs> every morning, blowing it out, greasing it. And, and, and with those kinds of things, you're, you're not using big, big old combines. You, you've got a 60 or 70 year old pool type, uh, you know, ag, uh, AC 72 AC. all crop. Yep. And, uh, and you can't find parts for those anymore. So we just buy them whole on auctions and hope that a few of the parts are still good. And then, <laughs> Dad'll if something breaks, I'm like, well, I gotta go to the parts store, and he's just got a row of combines that he's just gonna go and yeah, find a part. To the parts of. department, yep. Yeah, Kent had his fair shit, his fun time with that this this summer. Oh yeah, yep. Yeah, and and you know that's one of the things that so so my history, my background has been in education. I was a science teacher for eight years, and uh, um, you know wanted to be outside more often. My last three years of teaching, I had no windows, and that you know I'm an I'm an outdoorsman by by heart. You know I I live outside and uh to be in a room you know felt more like a cage <laughs> with no with no windows and and uh so i wanted to change in pace and and uh came to hoxie and one of the coolest parts of that is getting to work with old farm equipment i always wanted to be a farmer when i was a kid uh, my grandfather was and and of course a lot of the problems that Nick mentioned that happened during that his era of farming uh just did not make that you know, possible for me to transition into that role. And so now that I'm at Hoxie working on this old equipment that my grandpa would have been using and, and, uh, uh, kind of reviving a, a, an era of farming that's mostly gone, you know, is, has been, uh, one of the best parts of my new job. So even though, yeah, 39, managing 39 species is, is a, is a lot of work. Carol is an expert and he's teaching me as, as, much as he can and and just getting to learn from a true expert like him is is uh been a real privilege that most people don't get to experience so yeah it, it is kind of weird because what the knowledge that dad has gotten mostly through uh cussing uh is uh i mean there are very few people that we've run into you know there's a lot of people that know quite a bit about prairie um but man, just the amount that he knows still, I mean, I've been around it for decades and I'm still blown away by how the little things that he knows. And on, uh, you know, just the other day he was telling me the difference of the minutes after a frost on prairie. Like he, he, he has studied prairie so much. He knows at times the, the minute, the different minute marks, you know, four minutes, eight minutes after the, the sun comes up from a frost and how the prairie reacts. And because a lot of it has to do with harvesting. I mean, you're trying to fit, you're not harvesting two species. You have to learn how to harvest, uh, you know, 40 different species. And, uh, some of them use different equipment. Some of them you have to swath. Some of it you have to dr let dry out. Some of it, if you get it too early, it won't germ. Some of it, if you get it too late, it'll blow away. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a nightmare and he keeps, <laughs> I tell him he needs to write it out cause he keeps it all in his brain. Um, and it, it's really an incredible thing. And so a few years ago, my brother-in-law was working there as well. And, and he started, uh, what we now call our, our backyard prairie. He started taking the knowledge that dad had on large, uh, large scale farming and implementing it into 500 square foot areas. 
you know, and, and he did, he spent a lot of time figuring out, okay, what mixes go best together in Iowa, especially our part of Iowa, what kind of species are going to go well with each other. And we want a lot of it. Um, and, uh, and it was interesting that large scale prairie grass farming can actually be brought down into such a small science. It can be, it doesn't change that much prairies ecosystem. You can have, you can have a really full prairie ecosystem minus some of the larger, uh, um, fauna. You can have the flora, you can have a large scale in the size of this room. Uh, you can have a hundred species, you know, just coexisting in, in an area. And, and, and that's, what's really cool about prairie is seeing it all come together. It, it makes the pain of having to deal with all these different species individually, it makes it worth it, especially when you see a field. We went out to a gentleman's field out in Iowa County. Um, Russell Kurt, he uh, worked at the College of DuPage and wrote a book on prairie. And his prairie, I think, had 120 species. And it had some species you can't even find. Like, no one sells these things. Uh, pristine, like no weeds, a little, little Queen Anne's lace right on the edge, but that was about it. Um, 30, 40 acres of just yeah. perfect. It's the closest thing I think I will ever see to Iowa 250 years ago. Um, if you get a chance to hang out or have that guy come speak here, he, um, he lives in Iowa County and, and, uh, he has a really cool prairie out there. But yeah, so that, that's a little bit about Hoxie native seeds. Our mission right now is to, uh, um, to not just subdue the land, but to steward it. I, I, I used to be really distraught i'm a business person at heart and i used to be really distraught that our business industry was propped up by tax dollars it really makes me sad sometimes but my dad sat me down and he said hey it's it yes money comes from tax dollars but the reason we get paid is because people have decided that it is worth their while to have cleaner air better water quality conserve what was here before and that's why we get paid not just because there are tax dollars being thrown around um and uh, there are some really well-used tax dollars, and we all know there's some less uh, appropriately used tax dollars. And, and I do think that conservation is among the highest way you can use it. So we're really just trying, we're trying to conserve and protect and bless the land that we have been gifted. And we use the term own, but, you know, it, we're just borrowing it from our kids and our, from, our, uh, from our descendants. So, yeah. And and the the tax dollars, of course, that Nick's talking about would be the CRP program mainly through uh, the farm bill, which we should have a new farm bill here soon. Yeah. Um, but uh, that is money that is well used, and I think uh, Carol said it beautifully. Where that is our chance as Americans to say, "Hey, we still value these things," and uh, you don't just have to go to a place like this and meet with the owls group to find out there's people that care about these things. It's our, there's a lot of people uh, across the country that still allow these programs to exist, and uh, they're critically important. We're, we'll we'll talk about that now. You know the. Uh, biggest question I think anyone could ask when we do a presentation like this, or when we, when we talk about where'd all the prairie go is, well, why is it even important anyways? Why, uh, don't we have a situation now where we have less hunger? Don't we have a situation now where people have more time for, uh, recreation than just working and, and don't we have technology? technological advancement and medical advancement. And, and that is true. Those are all a lot of very good things, right? But prairie is, is important for things that aren't so easily seen. Um, we'll kind of start here with, with the things that most often get cited, and that would be uh, uh, pollinators. Uh, pollinators, we've learned, are critically important for a lot of our food production. Um, I, I believe the stat that's often cited is one out of every three bites of food is made possible by the activity of pollinators. And of course, you know, bees and, and butterflies are the main ones we think of, but there's other species that well as well that help with the job, the task of pollination. Quick insert here. Yeah. Do you guys know Phil Ebert? Ebert Honey. So we had him on the podcast a little while ago. He has bees out on our farm. And, and uh, uh, if you guys get a chance to listen to any single episode that we have out, Phil Ebert's podcast about bees and honey and how he takes care of them is really, really cool. I, I highly recommend just knowing where 
what was voted the most important species on earth, uh, how, how they do what they do. It's cool. Yeah. Yep. So that's the Prairie Farm podcast. If you want to uh, search that out, you could probably just type that into the internet and should pull you up to several different places you can listen to that at. But pollinators, of course, are, are one of the first things people think of. Um, then, of course, we think of the other critters that live there in the in the prairie grass as well. Uh, sometimes uh, we get poked fun at for having a pheasant for our logo because uh, pheasants aren't from the United States. Pheasants are a Southeast Asian species. And uh, uh, of course, though, pheasants have earned a place here in the prairies of the Midwest uh, because the loss of other species that would have occupied a similar niche uh, in the past, namely the prairie chicken. Uh, But uh, pheasants, if we're going to, you know, they're, they're good visitors, I guess you could say, are good newcomers. So we kind of adopt them as, as a uh, species that we like having around on the landscape. And, and uh, uh, the, the, the prairie acres are so modified now that if we can have a species that can hack it and uh, not, you know, push out other species that do belong here, why not let them be here? But um, uh, we, so we know we have habitat with prairie grass for things like pheasants, but also native species like bobwhite quail. Um, Iowa is kind of the furthest north edge of the range for bobwhite quail. Um, uh, kind of interestingly enough, uh, I, I know, uh, Todd Bogenschutz, the, uh, upland biologist for the state of Iowa, just super smart guy. And uh, I've interviewed him a few times and, and he talked about how Bob white quail at one point, um, even though I, really Southern Iowa, just the, those Southern counties across the, the bottom of the state were really the, the natural range, the Northern end of that natural range. But, when uh, settlers had moved into Iowa, and, and uh, many of you probably remember the old hedgerows that used to be, uh, you know, running through farms, and, and those are pretty much gone now too. But uh, those hedgerows provided just the perfect habitat for quail, and they expanded not just all the way across Iowa, but up into Minnesota and Wisconsin as well. And so the bobwhite quail actually expanded its its range all the way up into Minnesota. But then as uh, all the hedgerows disappeared, uh, the quail, you know, they moved back down to pretty much their normal range. Now you, you wouldn't find quail up that far North anymore, Bob White's anyways. And, uh, uh, so we can even see little examples like that where, uh, just changes can can bring about good for some species and 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 today you know we do have some species that have done very well with our changes to the landscape the white-tailed deer would be one of those we have more white tails now in uh, north america than when uh christopher columbus first stepped foot here and uh we have you know coyotes that have expanded their range to i think they're in uh, 48 or 49 states now um uh, just uh so there are some species that do well with that change but we want to focus on those that haven't done so well and so prairie provides habitat for a lot of those native uh species that once we're here in great number and uh it'd be great to get them back and we've we've definitely seen some of that um, there's been some work with uh prairie chickens and bison and and elk in other states um, I think Iowa is going to have to change a lot more before we can have, you know, these giant uh, ungulates back on the back on the landscape. I imagine a uh, you know trophy uh, elk moving across Interstate 80 would be a little uh, nerve wracking for many people, but uh, maybe someday um, we can we can have room for those things again. But prairie helps with that. But more importantly, uh, I think the one that really is hard for people to see is how prairie affects our soil, water, and air quality. Uh, prairie grass kind of works as a natural sponge and as a yeah, uh, like a, a, a net for holding soil. Uh, the, the root systems on a lot of prairie grasses especially are very uh, deep running. Uh, Big blue stem takes the takes the trophy home for for most impressive root system, uh, stretching you know 10, 12 feet down into the soil, and uh, so holds a lot of water right during times of heavy rain, and uh, but also holds that soil together with its roots, 
um, and then serves as a windbreak. We just uh, interviewed another guy in Illinois a couple days ago, and he had planted uh, great stands of big blue Indian grass and switchgrass right along his driveway. And he said, I have a snowplow, but I don't really ever have to use it. That grass cuts down on those wind speeds whipping across his yard and and works as a natural snow fence you know to to lock in that hold that snow down from from drifting across his driveway like many of us have to deal with in the winter time right and uh so you can see there just in that example how that helps with wind erosion of soil and uh, that has really become a major problem um, for uh, producers keeping the soil on their ground. Uh, in fact, there's been recent talk of there's so much topsoil that is drained down in the Mississippi watershed, which is where we're at, third largest uh, watershed on the planet, I believe. And uh, so much topsoil has eroded into that uh, into the Mississippi River and deposited down near the Gulf of Mexico that there's talk of dredging <laughs> the Gulf of Mexico, uh, with, you know, to move all this soil out because it's causing problems down there with, with flooding and, and, you know, water's changing its course a little bit as it heads into the ocean. And some of the, the coral, like where, where a majority of the fish live, a lot of that coral is, is dying. It can't make it. And, and, and a lot of that has to do with, with, uh, not just that, but, um, the heavy amount of chemicals, cause some chemicals are fine, but just the, the heavy amount that is dumped into the Mississippi River um, through some of the farm practices. Yeah, yeah, and that grass helps screen that. And I shouldn't. I guess I should be more specific. More, more so the the river delta going into the the Gulf is is where this soil is really building up. And and what is that soil? That's well, that's our livelihood here in Iowa, right? That's the livelihood of the people in Illinois. Without our topsoil, we're no different than uh, uh, you know. Uh, North or Southwest Oklahoma, <laughs> you know, where, where there's just very poor soil quality or, or Colorado or places that have very shallow topsoil. If we allow that all to erode away, uh, we really lose what has made Iowa so productive for not just our, ourselves, for our own state, but in our own country, but for the whole world. Right. And so uh, prairie grass helps hold that thing of value for us. And uh, the other thing, the, the bigger thing, and uh, one that is certainly not without controversy, um, but it helps with our air quality. Um, through photosynthesis, plants take carbon out of the atmosphere, right? We know the from back in our grade school days when we learned the sweet magic of of respirating organisms such as ourselves breathing out carbon dioxide and plants taking that carbon dioxide in and making use of it and giving off oxygen back out into the atmosphere for us to use. And uh, they, they use, they store a lot of that carbon when they take it in, in the form of carbon dioxide to grow the plant, to make more plant cells. And uh, so when we have more plants on the landscape, we store more of that carbon in those plants. And uh, that is, that is uh, of course, the, the forefront of every conservation uh, conversation. I hate pairing those words together because it's always a tongue twister. Conservation conversation. Um, but uh, climate change, right? If we have too much of a carbon blanket in our atmosphere, we have too much of a greenhouse effect. If you made the walls of your greenhouse thicker, you're going to hold more heat in your greenhouse, right? And uh, if we, and, and certainly carbon dioxide is not the only greenhouse gas, but it is one of the primary greenhouse gases. And uh, if we have too thick of a blanket, then our temperature on our planet rises. And of course, you can get into these whole runaway train doomsday scenarios of a of melting glaciers and less reflection of heat back into space and uh, greater temperatures rising, sea levels rising, mass migrations of people towards the Midwest, especially far away from the coast. But prairie helps regulate that. Prairie helps take in that carbon dioxide, thin out that atmospheric blanket, keep our, our uh, climate at a more reasonable temperature like it's been for a long time, thankfully, since the last ice age, and uh, uh, gives us a better air quality, better 
weather conditions to uh, have better living here on our planet. And so prairie really solves a lot of problems for us. It, and then, of course, the water quality. Um, and Nick mentioned uh, with the you know farming and and chemical application go hand in hand. And uh, that's not entirely different either in the prairie business. You know, there's that those chemicals are incredibly useful. And, and uh, you, I'm sure you folks remember when times, uh, times when certain insecticides were in wide use and, you know, think of the DDT. I recently heard uh, how DDT would be used on, uh, on airplanes back in like the 50s and 60s to uh, make sure there were no, you know, mosquitoes that got on the plane that would bother the passengers and stuff. They'd squirt a little DDT around. And uh, uh, no DDT, of course, is is uh, used now. But uh, there's all these different chemicals that we have research on that eh, they seem pretty safe right now. But then we find out later, oh, man, this was causing this other downstream ecological problem. Well, prairie grass helps lock that stuff in place and keep it out of our water uh, and, and screen it. Phil Ebert was saying that um, there was a chemical that's been banned for like two decades or something like that, that he found in beeswax. That, that You're still it, finding in beeswax yeah, today. That it's hung around in the area so long as bees are, are pulling it in and it's going in their beeswax. And certainly responsible use of, of that stuff is going to be the biggest thing, right? Use it where, when you should, where it, where it should be used. But uh, in, in cases where, you know, too much is applied or there's a, you know, some kind of equipment, equipment failure, uh, Prairie can help, you know, contain the mess, right? They can work as, work as the sponge, so to speak, and not just have bare acres where this stuff runs off into the uh, water, carried away uh, uh, so easily through runoff. So prairie, in my opinion, and, and I'm sure many of your opinion, is critically important for those those different reasons. Did you have a diagram you wanted to draw? Well, we're we're at uh, 1040, so I can get carried away. You know, I used to be a I used to be a science teacher, and and I I uh, wait. Let me let me Vanna White it. I want I really want to do that. Oh boy. So, so you, it'll probably, you want to be the drawer. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so we need a triangle. I'll use the black marker. I already tested that one out to work. <laughs> Invisible ink. <clears throat> so, we need a triangle. Now, uh, maybe a couple inches up from the bottom, we need a line going all the way across. Oh, that'll work, I guess. Uh, Label that one uh, producers. So that's going to be your grasses. Those are your photosynthesizing, your your plants, right? Uh, or any organism, so even algaes, I guess you could put in there, uh, that are going to be photosynthesizing, taking carbon in, making food, right? Making food for the rest of, of the organisms that we have. So producers take in sunlight, take in carbon dioxide, and they make sugars that plant eaters will then consume. These are going to be your primary consumers, bison, elk, deer, rabbits, ob obligate herbivores, right? That's what they, that's what they, they eat plants. From there, we have kind of our small pre uh, predators. I actually, I saw one on the side of 163 this morning and I was, I was sad and I was running late for work uh, because of our late arrival last night. And I, I would have maybe called a, uh, uh, a game warden to see if I could uh, get a salvage tag to, to get the pelt, but it was a red fox that got hit on the side of the the side of the road. But that would a red fox would be a perfect example of well, don't let label it as secondary consumers, but they are small predators. Raccoons are another classic example of that. Um, so animals that are going to eat. You know, it's not just any, they're going to match, you know, the size, you know, a red fox isn't going to take down an elk, but, but, uh, they'll eat lots of mice and, and rabbits and things like that. Uh, so secondary consumers. And then at the top, we have the tertiary consumers. And when I was teaching this lesson in school, you'd always have a kid, you know, all eight years of teaching this. So that's where humans are, right? Humans are the tertiary, the top, the apex, the, you know, like the wolf, like the grizzly bear or black bear, right? And at one time, I think we probably could have said, yes, yeah, that is where we belonged. However, there's two things about this energy pyramid that we don't have on here yet, which are a couple of arrows. So have that, 
Uh, yep, arrow pointing up and that one pointing up as well. And uh, on one on the left hand side, right, decreasing population. So as we go up our energy pyramid here, we have decreasing population for all of these classes of organisms. And then on the other side, have decreasing available energy. Decreasing available energy. In order for all these things to consume, they have to expend energy. You got to use energy to get energy. It's just like farming, right? You got to put in inputs to hopefully get outputs that are greater than your inputs, right? And uh, so when a, when a plant is growing, it has the least amount of energy put into growing, right? It doesn't move. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, have to run away from predators. It's just there. As long as the sun is, is hitting them, they're making food. So they, they give off the least amount of energy to get energy. Well, then when you get to the next level, the primary consumers, they don't have to put in a ton of energy, but they have to put in a lot more than the plants, right? They got to wake up in the morning, stretch their legs, walk around, uh, find a mate to reproduce, raise young, uh, avoid predators. So they, in order to get their energy, they got to put in a pretty substantial investment of energy, right? In fact, uh, ecologists have calculated out that it's roughly a loss of 90% of the energy that was available at the level before them. They give off, they, they expend that much energy to get their, their 10%. So as we can see here, that part of the triangle, well, we're a little off scale here, but it should be a smaller section because there's less numbers of organisms. There's less primary consumer species than there are plant species. There's more plants than there are cows, right? Now, as we go up to the next level, to secondary consumers, now you're talking about organisms that have to hunt their prey. They don't just go out and put their head down like a deer and, and nibble on some grass. Well, they they got to go catch something, right? Maybe catch a fish, maybe catch some insects, maybe catch small birds or small mammals. Uh, so they got to they gotta hunt and kill. That takes a lot more energy, right? So again, we calculate roughly another loss of 90% of the available energy, and our population gets smaller than two. And then finally, when we get up to the top, the tertiary consumers, uh, now you're talking a wolf that's got to take down a bison. You ever see one of those videos before? We were, uh, Katie was talking about David Attenborough. Uh, if you ever watched the Planet Earth series, there's some pretty striking footage there of a pack of wolves chasing a bison herd, I believe, in Alaska. And uh, there's nothing pretty about it, and there's nothing quick about it, right? It's, they run for miles and miles through deep snow a lot of times, and then they gotta then they got to make a tackle on a, you know, 2,000 pound animal with their teeth. Uh, that, that would uh, that'd make, that'd make football a lot more interesting, right? If you could only tackle with your teeth. But uh, and then, you know, not only that, but break the animal down, eat it, fight off other predators that try and take it from you. And so even a greater loss of energy available then as well. And because of that, nature stays balanced, right? Because we have this loss of energy at every level, the wolf population never gets so big that it eats off all the bison and all the elk and all the deer, right? Because a lot of those wolves are going to go hungry. They're not going to have a successful hunting trip. They're going to die. They're not going to be able to feed all their pups every year. So a lot of their pups are going to die off and it keeps everything in balance, that regulation of energy, right? Well, humans, we used to be that way. In fact, we saw yesterday when we were uh, interviewing those guys, they matched points that they had found, stone points from our ancestors that would have been used to kill mammoths or used to kill uh, uh, giant ground sloths, you know, animals that are 12 feet tall. Imagine the amount of effort that went into getting a stake, you know, several thousand years ago. What effort do we have to get a stake today? When I was living in uh, Davenport, Iowa, you know, a nice big urban area, I could order a steak from my cell phone, and I could have, I could have someone drive that steak to my house, and I could eat it. How much energy did I put into getting that meal? Almost nothing, right? I'm down there at the producer level, right? I'm just sitting and, and vegetating on my couch. But as a result, because we found this way to get food without using our own efforts and our own energy, our population has done the exact opposite, right? 
we're at 8 billion individuals. There's nowhere near 8 billion grizzly bears, wolves, mountain lions, African lions, Bengal tigers, all those tertiary consumers on the planet. You could put them all together and not even come close to what our population has become, right? And so what is the cost of manipulating fossil fuels and manipulating all these other energy sources, wind, water, nuclear energy, right? What is the cost? I don't know. It's all sorts of things, right? And uh, one of them, especially with fossil fuels and how it relates to prairie, is we've created a lot, we've taken a lot of carbon out of the ground, existing as coal and oil, and we've changed it. You can't get rid of it. It still exists. It's just in a different form, right? Just like when all the snow melts, snow didn't, that water didn't disappear. It's just now sitting in puddles in the road and down the storm sewer and everywhere else, right? And evaporates back into the atmosphere. So all this carbon is sitting now in our atmosphere as a blanket that's growing and growing and growing. And as a result, our temperature, our greenhouse effect gets more and more intense and it gets hotter. So I'm not saying we need to get, you know, take our population back down from 8 billion. That'd be horrible. We don't want that. What's much better is to use our acres that we have at our expense to pull more of that carbon back out of the atmosphere. And prairie can help us do that. It's on the ground longer. It's growing longer. Of course, during this time of year, prairie's not taking any carbon out of the atmosphere, but it's also not releasing much into the atmosphere. It's just staying in the dead plant, right? And uh, instead of burning that, you know, as ethanol or whatever else like we do with, with corn, it it stays locked up in that grass and the same can be said for forestry right those trees they hold on to that carbon for so long and and uh take a lot of it out of the atmosphere for us so Ken's not saying anything about uh because we've talked about this before he's not saying anything about like getting rid of corn or anything like that it's just uh we just need more prairie yeah (laughs) yeah we just need a little more balance need more prairie more forest and we can we can take the effects of what that has caused and mitigate those effects. We'll never be perfect, right? And I, I don't think that it's realistic to ever, to ever want that. But uh, we do. We should want better, and I think we all do. And uh, like I said at the beginning, we're all optimists here. That's why we're here, right? And we think that these things can get better. And I think we can start right here in Iowa as being an example to the rest of the world that hey, we can still be productive. We can still feed a lot of people, but we can also look at some of those acres that maybe don't produce so well, but still require a lot of fossil fuel to manage them. Maybe we can stop spending so much fossil fuel to manage acres that aren't producing well and just put them into prairie. And now we're doing the opposite of what we're doing now. We're, instead of releasing all this carbon, we're taking all this carbon back in. And uh, so that would be the way prairie can help our air quality. Wow, that went long, Nick. That was good. That was really good. I, I learned a lot. I tried to explain this without drawing it once, and I don't know. I think it's going to be pretty uh, confusing. So thank you for being Vanna White there. Well, it doesn't help anyone who's just listening to this podcast episode. We apologize to you. Maybe maybe we can get a picture of it and put it on our Instagram so you can can, uh, check it out when this podcast releases. But, you know, with all of this, we talk about we need more prairie. Let's talk about some some real things, Nick, that people can do right now to try – and uh, make prairie stronger here in Iowa. I I think the biggest one, and and we talked about this, is, I mean, you guys are already on on the ball with this one, but education. Um, And, I mean, even at a fundamental level, you know, it's not not taught in schools, uh, but education leads to passion, and passion leads to change. Um, and so when, when you have education and people are aware of what's going on and, and a lot of people are making poor decisions, not because they're bad people. Most of them are actually really good people. And when they learn, oh, this is actually a pretty poor decision that I'm making when they've been educated on how to make better decisions, they choose to do that. So I, I would say a big, a big part of it is education are, uh, getting the word out. I mean, that's, that's why we do the podcast is, uh, Hey, people don't know. They they don't. And things that Kent and I, I mean, we're around Prairie all the time. So it, things that are quote unquote obvious to us, I mean, they're not obvious to everyone. And sometimes I take it for granted. I need to remember, oh, people don't actually know that big blue stem roots go 10 feet into the ground. They don't know that the ta- the the water table is heavily affected by, uh, by prairie grass. They don't know that trees um, can affect, you know, everything 
everything around it in terms of inside the soil. So uh, when they know that, though, they, they make more informed, more educated decisions. And and beautiful thing about America is you can have the same education and make different decisions. But without that education, you get a whole lot worse decisions. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Um, you know, some of the other things, too, uh, I, there is an event coming up soon uh, with Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation, I believe in March. Uh, they recently acquired some land. I think it was donated to them uh, over just north of Pella. And uh, they're, they're having an event where they would like people from the public to come out and help uh, remove a bunch of invasive plants that are growing there. They'd like to restore that to some prairie acres. So, uh, you know, looking for volunteering events like that, um, that looks different for, for every person, by the way. Sometimes that's being there to provide water for the, the volunteers. Sometimes that's crawling around on your hands and knees and getting a little dirty, right, and, and pulling plants up by the root. But volunteer in whatever way you've been, uh, you know, given the ability to do so. And then, uh, like I just mentioned with that example, uh, uh, donating land, you know, allowing some of that land to, to come out of production and go into, uh, uh, these, these acres that are restored into prairie and people can go there and enjoy them and see the beauty. And that's what the Iowa natural heritage foundation will allow. I think, uh, you know, like Nick was describing our friend Russell uh, uh, Kurtz Prairie there in Iowa County, that was a powerful moment for us to just be walking through there and be seeing these plant species that most people don't even know exist but are from here. That's powerful, right? That's moving when you see the beautiful lead plant or, or a gentian or, a, or a, you know, a cup plant or something like that that is growing out here and uh, just appreciate its beauty. And uh, so donating land can provide that. Um, also, uh, simple as enrolling some of the acres into CRP, you know, uh, look for uh, NRCS has a phrase and Pheasants Forever has adopted it. We like it. Um, they use the phrase, uh, farm the best, conserve the rest, or they'll even say CRP the rest. So those acres that are low productivity, um, go ahead and maybe look at getting a CRP payment instead of, uh, you know, a, a less than desirable commodity payment. And a lot of times those areas are net losses anyway. Right. And, so. and not only that, but there's far less inputs for CRP than there is for maintaining uh, grain acres. So uh, it's, 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 it's worth your while to look into, into maybe, you know, talking to a farm bill biologist from Pheasants Forever or a, uh, a biologist from uh, uh, NRCS or soil and water even. And then, uh, Prairie plots, right, Nick? Mm -hmm. We push those a lot with uh, some of the mixes we sell. What would be some mixes people could look at for prairie plots in their own yard? Well, the the big ones that we we do is we'll do so we try to have diversity. You know, forty plus species in the mix, sometimes up to upwards of sixty. Uh, but tall and and short grass, just depending. Usually, people like the short when it's right around their house, but uh, the tall grass really makes a nice fence. Around the area, and and if you want mostly just prairie grass, which which would still be good, I would say not quite as good, but still good. I mean, you're you are looking at you know maybe a hundred twenty dollars an acre, um, but most people for their yards aren't they're not buying an acre's worth. They're buying uh, an eighth of an acre, an or eighth, something a like thousand that. square feet. A lot of times, you know, just in a little low wet patch in their yard. Um, and, and I actually did the math on, I looked up how many houses were in suburban Chicago. And uh, if you took just Chicago, and I believe, I can't, it was either 10 or 20% of the houses put in a backyard prairie, you were looking at like 4,000 acres of pollinator and flowers. And imagine, now get this, imagine Chicago became a stopping point for monarch butterflies. Wouldn't that be cool? Like a, like a major city becoming a, because... Because, you know, some odd uh, 400,000 homeowners yeah. all together decide, hey, we're going to put in $30 worth of prairie and never mow that area again. You know, there's a, there's a whole lot of benefits. And um, it, it's cool because we're not, we're not looking to go back to loincloths and spears and killing <laughs> buffalo. That's not – but – I might be all right with that. But. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> well, but – how can we integrate? How can we live with these species? You know, and so we don't we don't have to push them out anymore. They're not a danger to us. We we are 
we are the primary species that's hanging out here. And so how can we invite them back in in a way that works for everyone? And I believe that uh, backyard pollinator, backyard prairie, mm. um, these little plots, you know, just having some trees, if you have enough uh, so wooded areas, the, the, just having those and being okay. A big part of it is being okay with, with uh, a little bit more mess. Not, not that it's going to be messy. It's going to be beautiful, but we love our cookie cutter. There's something inside of humans that loves to categorize love symmetry. Yeah. Yep. Our symmetry. And, and, uh, and, and I mean, yards started about a thousand years ago as a status symbol, right? Cause only the richest people could have, could have this land that wasn't producing anything. And then they had their, their peasant servants, uh, mow their, their lawn with like scissors or something, you know, <laughs> just. Just crazy stuff, and and so we've kind of adopted it. But uh, man, to me, having your whole yard in just grass is is uh, antiquitous. It, it's uh, there are better ways to do it. Now. Yeah, it's a loss. It's a loss of opportunity. You know, really, what we're kind of dancing around here is there's value that goes beyond the dollar. You know, so so much of the way we can think is dollars are the only thing that have value. Mm. But there's there's a lot of other things that you can't quantify that carry so much value. And uh, you know, the these are long term solutions, right? Um, I have three kids and I I don't think that a lot of these big changes that we'd love to see are going to, I'm not going to see a lot of them in my lifetime. You know, I'll be gone by then. But if I can make it a little bit better for them, those three kids, you know, uh, haven't I done my job as my parent? And then hopefully they carry on that message that I passed to them and uh, make it better for their kids. And, you know, we're, we're not, we, we change this land in just a few generations. We can change it back in just a few generations as well. Wow. That was wonderful. Well, we'll be hanging out afterwards, but for everyone who's just listening to this podcast, we appreciate you. And just as we talk today, don't forget the con- conservation. That is hard to say. <laughs> this uh, conservation happens one yard at a time. Thank you.